0: chapter 10 of the book of Matthew is really a discourse from Jesus to his disciples before they left on this short-term missions trip, if you will, going throughout the land of Israel, proclaiming to repent that the kingdom of God is at hand. And however, Jesus knows in his divine foreknowledge that these men aren't, it's not going to be their only missions trip. In fact, most of his 12 apostles would end up giving their life in martyrdom for the faith throughout the known world at the time. And no doubt, he also knew that Jesus's words in this discourse would be recorded in scripture, there to encourage the persecuted church for centuries to come. And so that those who are facing real persecution would be comforted by the truths that Jesus revealed in this discourse. And so that other places like South Amboy, New Jersey, perhaps, who, though we're not facing persecution for the faith as many have over the years, we can at least make sense of the world around us. We can make sense of this growing hostility in our culture towards things of the faith. And the last time we were together, we were encouraged by Christ to keep the bigger picture in mind that we were instructed to fear God in the sense of having a reverential awe of God, as opposed to having the terror of men be our hindrance. And that if we keep the right perspective, fearing God rather than fearing man, we would have the right outlook throughout this lifetime. And as we conclude this discourse, building off of that premise First, Jesus has one last exhortation to us to set the right expectations of what his teachings are going to do, specifically to families. As verse 34 picks up, as we kind of recap on this, where it says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, for I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, what's all this about? I thought Jesus was supposed to be the Prince of Peace. What's with all of this? Well, simply, to put it simply, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but the world will not have peace with him. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The world simply will not have peace with him, though. His message of repentance, to change your mind, to change your ways, to turn from the ways of this world and following our sinful passions to following God is offensive to so many. This call to have an objective standard for what is right and what is wrong in this world is offensive, especially to this post-truth culture that we find ourselves in, where the The mantra of the day is you do you and I do me, except where you doing you gets in the way of me doing me. That's a whole nother story. But there are many who frankly desire for there to be no God, because if there is no God, then there's no one to hold you accountable for your sins. There's no uh, nothing stopping you from living your life according to whatever sinful passions and idols you've made of your life. And because of that truth, the presence of Christians proclaiming this message throughout the world doesn't bring peace. It brings this sword. And by sword, what does a sword do? It divides. One way or another, it divides, which is what Jesus is saying here. The gospel will divide families. It will divide uh, communities. And sometimes it will take the imagery of the sword quite literally and be violent. I mean, we talked last week how what we're doing right here is illegal in something like 52 countries throughout the world. People are still being put to death simply for believing what we believe today all over the world. It's tragic, but it's true. Um, But... Other times, maybe it's not as violent. Maybe you're just the resident Jesus freak at the Thanksgiving table. That happens too. I know about that. (laughs) And because Jesus' message can and will divide families, the most intimate of all of our world's institutions, Jesus says that our allegiance to him must be first and foremost in our hearts. That following him has to be the most important thing to us, which is his whole point in verse 37, where he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And just to kind of frame this in the right perspective, because there's a lot of feelings on this topic You see, the danger of idolatry, which is putting something more important in our hearts than God, the snare isn't usually bad or wicked or sinful things. It's usually good things that we need to that are out of place, out of that have the wrong priority, that end up becoming a snare to us. You know, money, family your job, your reputation, those are all good things. The Bible even tells us to excel in those areas, to to be good stewards of our money, to be good good spouses, to work hard uh, and contribute to society. Those are all good things. But if those good things we have elevated in our hearts above our identity as Christians, above our love and passion for Christ, well, then even those good things have become idols in our hearts. (laughs) Which is kind of a strange paradox, because the more we do love God, the more we serve him, the more we follow his word more closely, the better we become in those areas. The better son I become, the better father I become, the better spouse I become, the better at managing God's money I become. But (laughs) that'll have to be another (laughs) sermon for another day. But if you put those things above your savior, you will often end up denying Christ or minimizing your relationship with him to get those things. Let me explain what I mean by this. Let's use a tangible example. Because I, I know that there have been especially a lot of women who have feared that their husbands might leave them because they're taking this Christianity thing too seriously. Where they say, you know, oh, you used to be fun going out and partying with me, swinging with me, all of this other stuff. But now we have to be home early on a Saturday night of all times so you can get up early for church. You used to be fun. I'm out of (sighs) here. Perhaps leaving that person alone as a single mother. Probably not making a great income because that's one of the number one indicators for poverty. Now, I'm sure all of your hearts just went out to this hypothetical person I just made up. That person's not that hypothetical. It happens. And it happens all over the world. And it's a lot worse in other countries that don't have the support networks we have here in America. I've heard some heartbreaking stories from around the world where that exact thing has happened. And Jesus wants to make it clear to all of us, whether we're facing that specific situation or a similar choice in our own life. If the worst case scenario happens, if you have to choose between me and something else, whatever that other good something else is, who are you going to choose? Are you still all in on your faith? Or did that person, that job that opportunity whatever it is just become an idol to you and I don't mean to make it sound like I'm picking on that this, this hypothetical women because men have plenty of other snags not least of which other women that they're chasing after goodness the families that have been destroyed over that faiths that have been shipwrecked over that but God calls men and women everywhere to, to count the cost, to put Christ first, and to trust that He is going to take care of the rest. Because you know, let me tell you, even jumping back to that hypothetical woman for a second, there there is nothing that she could theoretically lose that she won't gain infinitely more of by following Christ and believing in him and trusting him. Yes, you might lose a family member over your faith. You might lose a a spouse even, but you gain a heavenly father who's gonna be a much better provider for you than any man on this earth could. I don't care how much money he has. And and more than that, you gain the family of God the whole church, the family, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ that are there, again, mind you, our number one, one of our chief goals as a church in the book of James is said to take care of widows and orphans in their time of need, right? So if that's something you're up against, if that's a challenge that someone you know is facing, the church ought to have your back. And I don't know who I'm saying this to. Maybe you guys know somebody. But if that, if you know somebody going through that, this church has your back. Maybe somebody hears it on the podcast later, but that this church will have your back. But not only must we value God over our relationships and our friendships, but our very lives as well. He goes on to say in verse 38 that says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are profound words, and we, we don't even understand how profound these are. I mean, the cross has become so sanitized of a symbol that we forget its origins. It was a symbol of death and torture in the first century. It was a horrendous symbol. It was a symbol that when you saw it, your your heart skipped a beat out of terror, out of the, the horror of what it was. Jesus here might as well have said, you know, to be sure to take up your electric chair and follow me. And can you imagine the hymns we would have to write? You know, oh, the old rugged electric chair. Oh, the wonderful firing squad. You guys are looking at me funny, but that's how it is. That's the symbol that we have all over this church, all over our scriptures, all over our Christian literature, a symbol of death, a symbol of torture, a symbol of horrendous things. But that's exactly why Paul said that the gospel is foolishness to the Greek Gentiles who missed the point, but that... But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Because only God can take a symbol that the Romans used as fear, as torture, as death, and turn it into the definitive symbol for ages to come of love, of grace, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. Only God could do that. It's an amazing work of redemption. Just the very symbol of the cross. It's amazing what God has done with that. But to kind of zoom out again to get the main point of those verses we just read together, if, if there's something higher on our priority list, whatever it is, even our own lives above following Christ, then it says here, Jesus' own words, you are not worthy of Christ. And, and here's what I mean. I mean like the person saying that they want to be a Christian while still clinging to their sins that that's like a man who says he wants to get married but still has women on the side that person is not ready for marriage that person isn't ready for the high calling and commitment that marriage calls for and 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 so too with this this person who desires to be a Christian, who says they maybe even are a Christian, but have higher priorities than Christ. It's, Jesus is saying, you can't have that. You've missed the point. In fact, this is the problem with our modern way of looking at things. I'm not sure how well anyone's going to be able to see this visual aid or how symmetrical this is going to be. Well, let's just say I were to draw a very awkward circle. Put a dot in the middle of it. Most people would say that this circle represents my life. And that little dot in the middle, that's my faith. It's a part of my life. I I might even go out of my way and say, well, you know what? I put it in the center of my life. It's the thing that everything else flows from. It's, it's, It's right there in the center of my life. But Jesus calls us to do the opposite actually here. He says, no, the circle represents your faith. And that little dot in there is you. That Jesus is calling us to be so immersed in our identity as a Christ follower that everything else gets redefined by our relationship to him. That every other identity I have, whether it be as a husband or a father, is immersed in the greater identity of being a Christ follower. That's what Jesus is calling to here. That is the main takeaway in all of this. And sadly, that is what a lot of American Christianity specifically misses. Where Christianity is relegated to a part of my life. Or something I do on a Sunday. Or something I come and help out with once or twice throughout the week serving in a ministry of some various capacity rather than the thing i identify with most deeply and if this is an area where maybe as i'm talking about this maybe you're feeling a little sting maybe you're feeling a little bit of conviction this morning my counsel to you would be the same one that i would give to that hypothetical man that's not quite ready to commit yet to count the cost Choose this day who you are going to serve, the Lord or your idols. You can't have both is what Jesus is telling us to do. But let me tell you, if you cling to your life, your comforts, your family, whatever else it is, it's eventually gonna slip through our fingers because everything in this life is temporary. Everything. But if you hold onto the things that we have in low esteem, in comparison to the knowledge of Christ, you will gain far more than you could ever possibly lose this side of eternity. Jim Elliott wisely worded it, saying, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And Here's the beautiful part. Once you place, once you do place your, and find your identity in Christ above everything else, Jesus deeply identifies with you as well. We maybe not think about that a lot, but that's exactly what verse 40 and 41 of our text say straightforwardly. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Now, that's a lot of language, but it's a simple point. See how deeply Jesus identifies with his church. That if someone were to receive you in the sense of, again, we're thinking of like a missions trip specifically for these apostles he's speaking to, but in the sense of receiving you, receive, welcoming you, taking care of you in whatever capacity you're stepping out to serve Christ in, they're doing it unto Christ as well. He's saying, you did that to me. It, it, it should bring to mind some of you who know the scriptures, Acts chapter 9, where Paul the apostle in the path where he was still called Saul of Tarsus at the time when he was knocked off his high horse. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul of Tarsus was not, he, he came into the picture after Christ was crucified in biblical history. We have no record of what him, he was doing he, to the best of our knowledge. He wasn't there at the cross of Christ. But he was persecuting the early church. And Jesus said, when you were persecuting them, you were persecuting me. And yet, to receive and welcome someone on the opposite side, not just in the negative sense of persecution, but in the side of welcoming. When you welcome someone in my name, you have welcomed me. Me. Jesus said just a couple of chapters after this discourse in Matthew 25, speaking about this, he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous people who were listening said, Lord, when did we ever do any of that? And the king answered them and said, Truly, I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Wow. Therefore, when you receive someone, uh, whether it be, a, in, as the verse goes on to say, a prophet of God, someone proclaiming God's word and welcomes them or supports them. You receive Christ and will enjoy the same rewards that that prophet, that person going out in God's name We'll enjoy someday. Because look, we can't all be pastors, evangelists, and missionaries. We're not all called to go throughout the world. We can't all go for various reasons. Um, so even though we can't all physically go as they go, we can send them. We can equip them with what they need to do the job. We might not have the time to be able to go on a trip with them or to volunteer our time with like an urban missions group, but we can give to them, many of us. And by giving them and supporting them, we're partnering with them in the gospel. For instance, when you guys give and some of, some of your portion goes to our missions group here in this church and we send it to Linwood's mission up in, uh, up in Elizabeth, you guys are supporting urban missions simply by giving locally. Because it's a faithful church here and we're accountable for that stuff. So if you don't have, or the opposite might be true, maybe you don't have money but you have time so we can dedicate our time to serving God in various areas. But the fact is not even the seemingly smallest thing we can do for others is ever overlooked, whether it be of our time, of our energies, of or of our physical resources. As Jesus concludes this by saying, whoever gives one of the little ones, one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So in Christ's eyes, to get these rewards that we're talking about, You don't have to be the leader of a large ministry. You don't have to have a title of elder, deacon, pastor, whatever, or whatever committees you might find yourself on. Whatever you do, Jesus takes note of what you do, even the smallest thing that you do in his name. Even giving somebody a cup of cold water will receive a heavenly reward. So whoever left me this this morning, you're going to get it. (laughs) God noticed, even if nobody else in the church did. And if that's true, then looking around this room, knowing many of you guys, oh, I am jealous of some of the crowns that are going to be received by you guys. I am jealous of some of the rewards you guys are going to get for the things you have done going out in his name. And in conclusion, the most amazing part of all of this is that we deserve none of it. None of it. Who, who are we to be rewarded for anything? And Isaiah 64.6 says that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. And those of you who know the scriptures know that's a kind translation. The truth is our deeds have earned us one thing. Our place in hell, through our rebellion and sins against God. That's what our deeds have earned us. So how in the world are we talking about rewards as we conclude this morning? How do we make sense out of this crazy dichotomy of the, the, the judgment I deserve, but these rewards that I'm going to get for doing things in Christ's name? That is p- the incomprehensible beauty of the grace of God. That not only does he withhold the punishments that I do deserve, which is God's mercy, by the way, but he showers us with these rewards as a gift to us, which is God's grace. He certainly doesn't have to give it, but he chooses to give it to us out of his great, deep, abiding love for each of you. That's why 1 John 3, 1 says, see the kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the only reason any of this is remotely possible is because of this table. This table points to what that is about. What happened and what communion points towards. The realities that the bread and the cup point to are the only reason any of this is possible. Where instead of letting us take our due punishment for our sins, Jesus went in our place. As God couldn't have let our sins go unpunished or he wouldn't have been a just God. He can't just sweep it under the rug and say, I forget about it. We wouldn't accept that in a modern court system, how much more a heavenly one. So he could have either let us face our consequences or serve our penalty in our place. And that's what he did for us out of his abundant love. And every part of this table points to that glorious moment on the cross where Jesus allowed his body to be broken for us by that symbol of death above us, where his body was broken, symbolized there by the bread, how the bread will break. And where Jesus, where his blood poured out like wine, almost yeah, like the wine below us, again, in our place. So that now all who believe that Jesus did that for us, the very, and believes that Jesus died for our sins, the very sins that condemned us, Everyone can be forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. That's why we do this. That's why month after month we celebrate communion here and why Sunday after Sunday we celebrate these same truths. It's an inexhaustible joy and a privilege to worship and celebrate what God has done for us. And we don't do it out of religious obligation as other places do it. We're not here because we have to be. Unless you twisted the arms of your kids and made them come. But we're all here to worship out of the outflow and the overflow of a grateful heart. That's what this is all about. Thanks be to God. Amen.